Uh, our scripture reading for this week, what we're going to be spending our time uh, looking at together, is found in Luke chapter 23, uh, and we're going to be starting in verse 32. You're going to hear uh, some familiar words if you were here last week as Waylon preached on, on part of this, uh, but we're moving into the part that, that follows that as well. And, and um, So yeah, so starting in verse 32 and going all the way uh, to the end of 43. Two others both criminals, were led out to be executed with Jesus. When they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too, offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you uh, illuminate your word? Would you reveal yourself to us this morning, God, as we uh, look to this account uh, of the life of your son, Jesus? Would you guide us in our time? Would you open our ears? Would you open our hearts? Would you give us sight to be able to see uh, what you have for us? I pray once again that I would not be a stumbling block, that I would not get in the way. I would not be an offense, but that you would enable me, God, to bring uh, your word to speak your truth. So God, speak and help us to listen. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> uh, my family and I, I don't know, it's been, it's been quite a while since we have had uh, cable. I don't know if you are amongst uh, the people who have sort of cut the cord of their TV. Not literally cut it, but because <laughs> that's not, I don't know if that's the smartest thing. Just stop paying for cable and then you don't get cable. Uh, because there are so many other options out there for how it is that you will uh, watch your TV. One of the reasons that we stopped uh, subscribing to cable beyond the fact that it was expensive uh, was the fact that we wasted time. When we had uh, channels to watch, there would always be this idea that we would try to find something uh, to watch. And if we had interesting channels that would teach you nothing, and really when you came to the end of watching uh, an episode for us of, of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, we, uh, we were not satisfied in our stomachs. Uh, <laughs> we were probably discontent with the food that we were eating, uh, and uh, we hadn't really... Uh, 
we just felt, I don't know, maybe felt gross a little bit at the end of it just because it's like, ah, well, we didn't really accomplish anything. This wasn't really that meaningful. And so we kind of got rid of, we got rid of cable for, for a number of reasons, but one of them was that uh, we would just find ourselves wasting time. Uh, I am a basketball fan. I enjoy watching uh, NBA basketball. And so I knew that when we cut our cord and stopped watching cable, it meant that I mostly stopped watching basketball. And I became... Uh, super lame in the fact that I would constantly go to the website not to watch basketball games but to check stats which I think took me to a new level of sadness probably if I am to admit it before you and to see like on like in numbers wise how did teams do and then got to know numbers but I couldn't necessarily tell you how games went or anything like that and uh, and so it seems sad to me as I'm saying it uh, you don't have to be sad for me it's probably pretty anyway um, recently uh, I, I took a little bit of time because uh, the team that I cheer for the Toronto Raptors is doing really well this year anybody yay no, okay nobody cares all right <laughs> it is basketball I know it's not hockey it's not football but uh, there's a couple of you that are keeping silent I know you like basketball but that's fine you don't have to you don't have to expose yourself. Um, but I, I wanted to watch a few Toronto Raptors games, and there were some really like exciting ones coming up. They were going to be playing some of the best teams, and, and we wanted to see, like, oh, you know, I wonder if they're going to be able to compete because they haven't always been able to compete uh, in the, when it mattered and against the teams that were really good. And so I picked up uh, like a, a little subscription where I could watch uh, a few games and I had been, been watching those games. And shortly after I started watching, like they had won a number of games in a row. It was this really exciting time in the season. And shortly after I started watching, they started losing. <laughs> <clears throat> And then I began thinking to myself, maybe I should stop watching them play because it's possible that because I am watching uh, them play, that is actually why they're losing. Which is nonsense. <laughs> Isn't it nonsense? That somehow I think uh, that by turning on, uh, that turning on my computer, coming in to, to watch a certain game, that my actions have caused uh, a team of... Uh, paid athletes to begin losing, that I would think that I have like some sort of control uh, over what they do based on what I do is ridiculous. It's superstitious. It's, it's fairly silly. But <laughs> how many of you have certain... Um, What's the rituals when it comes to watching, let's say, a Rough Riders game uh, or something like that where you're like, if I do this, this, and this, I know in the past the Rough Riders have won. And so <laughs> I need to do this, this, and this. And the day that I didn't do this, this, and this, there was a 13th guy on the field and we lost. <laughs> I'm sorry to bring up an old wound. And it's ridiculous. It's really silly to think that, that our actions have any control over a situation like that. But we do. I mean, even professional athletes, they, they develop a certain level of superstition and ritual where they have to do certain things so that a game can go a certain way. And, and a part of this is just our human desire for control. Like, we don't really like being out of control. We don't like being in a situation where we feel as though we have no control. And it is really frustrating to watch your team do really bad plays and think that you have no way to change it. Uh, maybe you write emails to coaches and say, by the way, this is what you should do uh, to try to have control in the situation. But it's, it's a really frustrating thing to be in situations where we don't have control. Um, when we don't have control of the weather, 
we feel frustrated when all of a sudden it snows uh, intensely uh, on a Friday, Saturday, maybe when some of us are going to have a wedding uh, to tr- sort of travel to, and, uh, and others of us just don't want any more snow. <laughs> It can be frustrating that there's nothing that we can do to kind of change that. Uh, When the economy swings up and down and we feel like there is just nothing that we have to control this, it's a really uh, uncomfortable thing. And so we think, well, we need to make sure that we uh, do A, B, and C. Our business has to do this. And there's decisions you have to make within that. Let's let's blame somebody. Let's do something and, and all this kind of stuff. But a lot of it can be sort of out of our control. Other people's attitudes, that is out of your control, completely out of your control. Yet that can be a frustration for us when somebody doesn't see things our way, when somebody doesn't do things the way that we think that they should, when somebody doesn't have the attitude that we think that they should. And we seek to have uh, control in those situations. Our own health. We can do things that will help us to become healthier. We can eat well, we can run, we can get the, the sleep that we need or other exercise. I know some people hate running, lift weights really fast or whatever. Um, <laughs> that we can do different things to help ourselves be healthier, but you still hear stories of marathon runners who collapse because they've had a heart attack, not because they've stressed their heart out so much, but just because it was their time. And that there is this lack of control that exists within our world, yet we struggle against that. It's a really uncomfortable feeling to imagine that we don't have control. And so there are times where we, where we create certain controls or do certain maybe superstitious, superstitious or ritualistic things to feel like we have control of things. And when we are out of control, uh, we, we, we look around for reasons and, and look for ways to blame other people. It's so interesting that a big part of Jesus' story is the, the giving up of control. That, that he is referred to as someone who has humiliated himself, who has lowered himself, who has the creator of the universe given himself over to his creation and allowed them to not believe him or believe him, allowed them to uh, even crucify him and kill him, reject him in this way. That Jesus is one who didn't hold on to control, but that surrendered himself uh, to God and in certain situations to us. It's interesting. The story that we are looking at today is... um, we are going to get back to this idea of control, but we're, we're going to get there in a bit of a roundabout way. Uh, but the story that, that, that we're looking at today is about, is, is about Jesus on the cross. As we prepare for Easter, we've been looking at um, some of the things that Jesus has said as he hung from the cross uh, to try to, to learn from that. And so last week, Waylon uh, preached on Father, forgive them, uh, for they don't know what they are doing, uh, and, and brought that word to us very, very well. Um, and so this week, we are looking at specifically this story, but also uh, the saying, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, the story itself um, follows on the heels of, of Father, forgive them, and that Jesus was um, uh, mocked, 
He was put through a trial, he was beaten, he was given the cross, and then they nailed him to the cross, and as he hung from the cross, in in the Gospel of Luke it says that two others, both criminals, uh, were led out to be executed with him. Because in in the the Roman world, crucifixion was a uh, punishment for uh, severe and and dangerous criminals. And so Jesus had been deemed uh, a threat and this morning we were talking about just the band uh, in the back, we were talking about power, that so often governments are not necessarily um, threatened by religion, but that they want to hold on to their power. And so that Jesus was deemed likely in this moment someone who was a threat to their power as the Roman Empire. That there were people who were beginning to follow him and, and wanted to do uh, the things that he was saying, and so people were getting uh, a little nervous about that. And, and then the religious order, uh, as they heard Jesus claim to be the Son of God, to be the very Messiah, something that they did not see about him, even though it was true, that they were uh, offended and hurt, and uh, they saw that as blasphemy, and so they uh, had him killed. And so as he's hanging from the cross, there are two others uh, that, are, are, that have their own crosses that are nailed beside him, and they are referred to as criminals, that this is also a word that says, describes them as, as evildoers, that they were uh, legitimate threats to, to the Roman Empire at that time who were being crucified. These were bad people or people who had done bad things uh, and had been deemed uh, legitimate criminals, and they were hung next to Jesus. As they were there, um, as you read, people begin to make fun of Jesus. It says that the crowd uh, watched, but the leaders, specifically I think the religious leaders it says here, scoffed at him. They said things like, he saved others, let him save himself, if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. That the soldiers who were there mocked him and said, oh yeah, you're the king of the Jews. And that even the criminal, one of the criminals that was next to Jesus, uh, mocked him as well. You say that you're the Messiah, prove it by saving yourself, and why don't you save us too while you're at it, prove it that there is this mockery coming from so many places towards Jesus, from uh, the religious leaders, uh, from the Roman soldiers, so from church, from government, and then from, uh, from another criminal. From a criminal. Like someone who had been deemed a threat looked at Jesus and, and mocked him for the things that he was doing. Next to him, though, is another man who is only described as uh, the other criminal or a criminal. We don't know anything about him. We don't know anything as to uh, what he has done other than what he has done has been deemed worthy of being crucified. So obviously it's been a, a fairly terrible thing. And that this man on Jesus' uh, other side protested at what the criminal, and by extension, what the others uh, themselves had been saying as well, but specifically at uh, this one criminal. And he says, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but not him. And then he says to Jesus, remember me. He names him. He says, Jesus, remember me uh, when you come into your kingdom. 
And then Jesus replied to him, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise, meaning uh, in, in the paradise, paradise being a reference to uh, probably back to a Garden of Eden, and, and what we know from the book of Revelation is that uh, the, the future kingdom of God is one that can be uh, both a city and a garden, that it's sort of this beautiful uh, place of peace. And so we take from this uh, saying that Jesus has said to this man, because of whatever he has said here, um, that today you will be with me uh, in, in this much better place in paradise, or we could say in heaven. Which is pretty incredible if you think about it. Because this is a, a legitimate criminal hanging on a cross, about to die, being punished for his death, who has said a couple of things, and then Jesus says, yeah, eternal life is yours, for the most part, right? What is it about this man and what he said that, that caused Jesus to say what he did? I think that one of the things that you would see in the statement is that this man has owned his guilt. That, that he, uh, in his response to the criminal, says that we deserve to die. That there is an acknowledgement and an ownership and said, yeah, I am in a place that I deserve to be because of what I've done. This is what I've deserved. That he has owned his own part, right? That, that he has said, I am, I am guilty. I am guilty. And then the second thing that he does that I think Jesus notices uh, is that he actually calls out to Jesus for help. This term, remember, remember me when you come into your kingdom. As you see this term, remember, in Scripture, it is a deep knowing. It's actually sometimes used for engagement and things like that, but it is a, a, a deep knowing, and so it's not like just remember my name and, and when I show up at the gates or whatever, let me in because you recognize my face and, and who I am, but it is a deep knowing, and it is a call to say, remember me. We have prophets who say, oh, Lord, remember uh, your mercy. It's a calling for God to do what it is that he says he's going to do. And so this statement of this criminal is a statement of faith and a cry for help to Jesus, meaning that he feels as though Jesus is someone that he is able to make this statement of faith to uh, and that he will actually do something about that. This is pretty incredible. And this is actually the beauty of, of the gospel. that regardless of what you've done, forgiveness and new life can be yours through Jesus. As you own your guilt and you cry out for help. That's the beauty of the gospel. Regardless of what you've done, a criminal hanging on a cross being punished, a criminal uh, in, in a, uh, I know we don't do this in many places anymore, but, but an equivalent, a modern-ish equivalent is uh, a criminal in, in, in a chair about to be um, killed through a chemical injection or whatever, and in that moment owns his guilt, cries out to Jesus. We would see here that if that is a genuine thin thing, Jesus would say, okay. I'll remember you. Today you will be with me in paradise.
And it's interesting because what is it about Jesus that caused this man to say what he did? Did, did this man know Jesus before this? Had he been someone who uh, had heard of him? Undoubtedly, he had heard of him as he knew his name. Um, but had he witnessed things that Jesus had done? Had he uh, sat under Jesus' teaching at any point in time? Um, what is it that he knew about Jesus? Or was it even just this moment, what he saw of Jesus in this moment? How he heard Jesus say as he was being punished as he had been nailed to the cross that he then looked around uh, or in his spirit he just said father forgive them the mistreatment that I am facing God they don't know what they're doing forgive them is that something that would have had an impact uh, on this man that was next to him on the cross is it how Jesus suffered that enabled him to see something different about him is it the things even that other people said about him? Was it the mockery that contained truth? Was it the, the cries of the leaders that said, oh, you say you're the chosen one, the Messiah, yet this individual was able to hear through the jeers and to hear the actual truth that resided in that? And say, oh, yeah. Is it how Jesus handled the mockery that he remained silent that he took it that there was not a need within him to defend himself that clued this man in to that there the fact that there was innocence within him or that there was something completely different about him and that everything that people were saying about him uh, was actually true one of the things as i was reading this story uh, that that impacted me or that made me think a little bit <clears throat> was the, the amount of mockery that Jesus experienced as he hung on the cross compared to uh, the professions of faith that he brought about, like in that time, that, that the mockery far outweighed uh, any of the uh, professions of faith and, and the, the positive benefits of what we would have seen as Jesus hung on the cross. And it made me consider... Well, it made me ask this question of myself. Why am I so surprised when people mock Jesus? Why am I so surprised when our world doesn't understand him? Why does it surprise me when I hear about um, a talk show host who mocks out another, uh, a different person, a, a famous Christian who has said that they hear from God and that that talk show host then refers to that person as mentally ill. Am I hurt by that? Yeah, because it hits a little close to home. <laughs> because I believe that Jesus speaks to his people. But why am I surprised by that? Why is that something that catches me by surprise? Why is it something that in me brings up anger that I feel like I have to fight against, that's something that I feel like I have to attack. Because Jesus said the world hated me and it'll hate you. You know, in this instance of the story, and, and I'm intentionally not naming people within that story, 
the, the talk show host, after receiving letters and probably death threats over Twitter, because that's just what happens nowadays <laughs> when you say something that other people find offensive, that, that after getting berated in so many ways for saying something wrong, I'll, I'll acknowledge that, for saying something wrong, but after receiving so much berating from other people, they then uh, apologized about it uh, on their show uh, to, to other people. And, and the church could look at that and say, that's a victory. To that person who God loves and would love, to know, and would love them to know him, is it a victory? Have they been warmed to the gospel of Jesus or have they been someone who has experienced the irate anger of the church? I think that we obviously should not be indifferent to this kind of mockery, that we should not, um, not, not, that we should care about it, that we should probably be saddened by it, that we should be motivated to be different and that we should be saddened by the fact that somebody has missed the truth and that somebody is seeing uh, something that is mockworthy about our faith. But even within the mockery, I wonder if somebody saw the truth. Some people say that there's no bad publicity. <laughs> and I wonder if in the mockery somebody said, like, oh, somebody thinks that they can hear from Jesus. Somebody thinks that they can hear from God, I wonder. I wonder if they can. And here's the thing that I, I think that I want to bring us to, to here this morning. It is much rarer to see a genuine confession of faith in our world than it is to experience and see a mockery of the cross and of Jesus. It's a much rarer occurrence in this story as Jesus hung uh, to the world in defeat on the cross, but I think that it's also a much rarer thing for us to see uh, within our world. But when we see it, we should be overjoyed by the fact that someone has made a confession of faith. You know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that the, the, the road to life is, is narrow. The road to the kingdom, the road to experience true life in him is, is narrow and that few actually find it. And that we actually can't control how someone chooses to react to our lives, how someone chooses to react to the message of Jesus. That we can live the way that we know Jesus wants us to live, that we can be the way that we know he wants us to be. We can speak with knowledge, we can speak with compelling words, but it is not in our control as to how somebody responds to that. And that I think in our time, it is becoming rarer to see people make decisions for Jesus. Some of us remember a time where this wasn't true. Some of us remember that, that the church experienced revival. 
Some of us remember entire families coming to Jesus, large friend groups coming to Jesus. I remember when I was growing up, my entire friend group, uh, almost, other than like one person, made confessions to follow Jesus. I mean, at this point in time, I'm the only one that's still following, but there was these, these movements of people who came to know Jesus in deep and meaningful ways and in large groups. People came to faith. And this is something that I believe that we can hope for, and this is something that we would want to see now, but we also have this tendency to think that something is wrong uh, if this is not happening. When I was in uh, the, the country that I went to overseas uh, a few months back, one of the things that we learned, one of the stories that we heard is that they were sending out international workers to uh, another country. In this country that we had been in, uh, the gospel was something, that the story of Jesus, the church was something that was controlled and also to a degree oppressed. That, 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 that a lot of the church was sort of in small house churches and, and it wasn't able to be fully uh, visible because the government didn't want that. But the church was growing like crazy. And people were coming to faith in large groups and in really significant ways. And so they began to send out workers, international workers, from their country to another country uh, that's close to them. And this country is much harder uh, have not heard the gospel as much. And so as these international workers actually went into this country, how they had been used to uh, seeing people react to the gospel, which was actually like, people giving their lives over to Jesus because the Holy Spirit had been working and moving through the people in that country, all of a sudden what they were used to seeing was no longer happening. And that as they lived the way that they lived and as they talked to people about Jesus, they tried to figure out secretive ways to do it because again, the gospel was not welcome in this other country. They weren't seeing many people, if any people, come to faith. And because they were used to this, they began to feel like complete failures. And they left the work in the field to then go home to their churches, but even when they got back to their country, they didn't go to their churches because they were so ashamed, because they felt like failures. And they didn't go back into the field, they didn't even integrate back into God's family, into the church. They just were so ashamed and they hid. And it's so sad because the culture is different what they had gone from and gone to were such different contexts, yet they expected that what happened here would also happen over here. We've got stories of international workers, of missionaries in the past who have gone into countries that have never heard the gospel, who have spent their entire lives pouring out Jesus to people and seeing nobody come to faith. And then they die and then somebody else comes and they see all the fruit because seeds have been planted. We've heard that even a couple of times this morning, this idea of seeds being planted. And the ground was prepared. I remember talking to a guy in one of my previous churches uh, about you know, some of the difficulties we were facing, some of the, um, some of the, the misunderstandings that occurred within, within a context. And he looked at me and he said, um, you know, this is hard soil. This is hard soil here. And that saying stuck with me, that there is some ground, and as Jesus talks about a parable where there was a farmer who went out and scattered field, or scattered, scattered seeds in the field, that there was ground that was ready, that the seeds landed in and just took root, but then there was hard soil. 
that the seeds couldn't get down into and plant, and that before you actually were to scatter seeds on that ground, you had to do the work to sort of till up the ground, to prepare the ground, that the soil was too hard. Whether you like this or not, I believe that the soil in Canada is hardened. There's a number of factors, I think, that have contributed to um, our, the ground of our country being hard to, I think, the truth of Jesus. Um, you know, the rise of individualism, that, that it's all about me, I'm not so much connected to a community of people that it's about me. I would say institutional mistrust. You know, like you can talk to some of the younger generations, you can look around and in the way that our, our world is going, you can see how, how banks, you can see how churches, you can see how governments have kind of like violated people's trust. And you see along, along the lines in our country, people are not trustful of institutions and the church is viewed as, in a lot of ways, an institution. And so there's this mistrust that kind of exists out there. Uh, the fluidity of truth, right? That, that your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth is a contributor to that. Um, I think even the spreading out or the watering down of expertise that we actually come to a point where a lot of people in our culture mistrust the experts, that we'd rather go on the internet and find out what the, what the internet doctor says about what's wrong with us than, than our doctor doctor. <laughs> um, Christianity's cultural dissonance, that we believe things in Christianity that are not popular within our current culture. Uh, I think within the church, moral scandal, that we are not living the way that Jesus lived. Whether it be leaders, whether it be people in our pews, that our life does not look the way that it should. And we have mistreated people, we've mistreated others, one another, uh, and people look at that and they say, gross. Maybe even the politicization of, of Christianity. I don't know if that's actually a word. <laughs> becoming very political in our, in our thinking, becoming very divided in our, in our politics, and that that's what we become. I think all of these things contribute to the fact that our churches and the message of Jesus Christ is falling on, on much harder soil within our country. So I think that the ground has become hardened to our message. And if I can speak to this once again for a second, um, I think that this has left us disoriented. That we don't necessarily know what to do with our culture. We don't necessarily know what to do as the church. And that we see that things that we have done are not working anymore or are working very differently and we're not seeing revivals and we're not seeing in a lot of places full family groups coming to know Jesus, large groups of people making these confessions of faith. We see people coming to faith and we celebrate this, but we're probably seeing a lot more of the mockers uh, than we are of the criminal on the cross saying, remember me, I believe. And I think when this happens, and there's so many factors within our country that we can't control, we actually look for ways to blame other things that we'll look to blame each other. You know, you're not doing this, therefore this is what's going on. Our leaders aren't doing this. Our programs aren't doing the things that they're supposed to be doing. 
um, we need to be doing this, we need to be doing this, we need to be doing this, that we actually look and we blame other people for the things that we're seeing. We blame other systems. Whereas I think in this moment, within our country, in this moment within uh, the history of, of the church, what we need to do as Christians So we need to come together. We need to encourage each other. We need to pray for each other. We do need to pray for our country. We do need to pray that people would come to know Jesus in real and meaningful ways. Perhaps it does mean looking at new methods or, or figuring out how to rebirth old methods. Methods. Maybe it's a lot of trial and error. Maybe it's this idea that, that we are needing to be brave explorers of a new wilderness. The world needs to know of the persistent invitation and beautiful gift of experiencing forgiveness, freedom, and life through the saving work of Jesus. That this is available to any and all who cry out to him. We need to know that God is still drawing criminals, people who are owning their guilt, who will own their guilt, and cry out to him. God is still drawing these people to life-changing experiences with Jesus, to finding grace, truth, freedom, and life in him. And this is the good news. This is the good news. There are so many things that we don't have control of. Just after Jesus dies, there's a soldier, a centurion, at the foot of the cross. And after Jesus dies, again, potentially because of how he suffered, uh, potentially some of the things that he said from the cross, potentially just the, the power of God coming on him and, and, and helping him to realize that, that this was all true, he says, surely, in, in the Luke account, he says, surely this man was innocent or surely this man was righteous. In other accounts, it says, surely this was the Son of God. This man was who he said he was. And that it was something about his life that caused uh, this Roman soldier to say that, to see that, and to say that. We don't have control in a lot of cases, if not all cases, of the way that our country is. We don't have control of the past. We don't have control of each other. But we do have control of ourselves. How we live, how we speak, how we act, how we react, what our attitude and posture is uh, within the circumstances of life. We can't control how people react to our lives. We can examine whatever it is that we are showing uh, of Jesus in all that we say and do, and we can adjust those things accordingly so that, I believe, 
there would be people who would look at our lives and then potentially even people who would, upon our deaths, come to the point where they would say, surely this person was righteous. Surely this person was like Jesus, that they said that they followed and that they loved him uh, incredibly. Jesus. God, as Rick said earlier, there are times when we just don't know what to pray. But Spirit, you know. You interpret the things that are within our hearts. You give us words to say. Father, forgive us. Forgive us of our guilt, the things that we have done wrong. The ways in which we have mocked you, belittled you, ignored you. Holy Spirit, help us to see how we can give over to you the things that you are asking. That you would help our lives to be a reflection of Jesus, this man that we see hanging from a cross, declaring forgiveness for others, welcoming people into your kingdom who do not deserve it. And each of us, God, as, as I remember was brought up last week, each of us does not deserve it, but you offer it. God, I pray that you would lead us and that you would guide us, that you would enable us to surrender control to you, surrender to you the things that, that we have been holding on to because it hurts us to try to give those up. Jesus, I thank you for your love, for your tenderness, for your compassion, for your boldness, for your strength that we see uh, on the cross and how you interacted with people. God, may the world see, may the world know this is who you are. Help us to partner with you in that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.